0: Thank oh. you. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we'll be talking about circumcision. Circumcising baby boys has become a standard of normalcy, but can it really be that the bodies of half the population are defective? Is there no purpose to the foreskin? Do the benefits truly outweigh the risks? How complicated is it to take care of an intact penis? Dr. Adrian Carmack is here to tell us more. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by The First Eight Days of Being a Mom, a day-by-day manual on taking care of the new mom as well as the newborn. Get a 10% discount by going to thefirsteightdays.com slash birthful. That's with the number 8, thefirsteightdays.com slash birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mamas and mamas to I want to thank you once again for all the love you're giving the show. And here's a quick reminder that it would be super helpful if you could rate the show on iTunes. And to do that, go to birthful.com slash review. Click on view on iTunes in that link and then click on ratings and reviews and give us as many stars as you think we deserve. And if you could add some words to that, that would be even better. So all it takes is one link and three clicks starting from birthfulcom slash review. There's a video that explains it all. And I will be forever grateful. So, today's show is on circumcision, and I want to start by saying that if a listener has chosen chosen to circumcise a child, the intention of this show is not to shame or guilt or to judge anyone. We do the best we can with what we know when we know it. So, my intention is to provide solid information about a topic that has been for years surrounded by many conflicting factors, as well as myth and misinformation to enrich and inform future decisions. So, with that in mind i have dr adrian carmack here today and dr carmack is a board certified urologist and mother of three children all of whom were born outside of a hospital, breastfed, and kept intact. She is the author of The Good Mommy's Guide to Her Little Boy's Penis and Reclaiming My Birthrights, A Mother's Wisdom Triumphs Over the Harmful Practices of Her Medical Profession. Dr. Carmack speaks on holistic urology topics, ranging from kidney stone prevention to genital autonomy and other birthrights. Adrian, it's so great to have you here. Yes, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. So circumcision. This is a tough, tough topic, because it is rooted in deeply ingrained culture beliefs. And I almost don't even know where to begin. There's so many angles to it. Health, ethics, religions, economics.
1: What, where do you think we should start? Uh, let's start with health. i got it. Because that's the main reason why most people who are choosing it in this country believe that they're doing so.
0: Okay. So what... I guess, you know, obviously researching this topic, the first thing I came across was the American Academy of Pediatrics current policy statement on circumcision. And um, do you mind, should I read some of that and then we can break it down?
1: Sure, that'd be great.
0: Yeah. So the the policy statement says the health benefits of newborn male circumcision outweigh the risks and that the procedures benefit justify access to this procedure for families who choose it. Specific benefits identified include prevention of urinary tract infections— penile cancer, and transmission of some sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. The procedure is well tolerated when performed by trained professionals under sterile conditions with appropriate pain management. Complications are infrequent, most are minor, and severe complications are rare male circumcision performed during the newborn period has considerably lower complication rates than when performed later in life. Although health benefits are not great enough to recommend routine circumcisions for all male newborns, the benefits of circumcision are sufficient to justify access to this procedure for families choosing it and to warrant third-party payment for circumcision of male newborns. It is important that clinicians routinely inform parents of the health benefits and risks of male newborn circumcision in an unbiased and accurate manner. So there's a lot in there. (laughs) Yes. Um, Let's put the, it says the benefits outweigh the risk, um, but not enough for them to recommend it as a routine policy. So let's look at those benefits in perspective. Is it true that it helps prevent urinary tract infections?
1: So, you know, what kind of struck me when you're reading the benefits is that they use the word prevent and that word, I think, is misused a lot in relationship to circumcision. It doesn't prevent any diseases. Circumcised men and circumcised infants can get urinary tract infections. They can get penile cancer. They can get STDs. It, it might reduce the risk. There is conflicting data on this. Um, there was a large study done, I think, in the 80s that showed that there was a reduction in the risk of UTI in infants who were circumcised at birth. Um, but there have been subsequent studies where they were performing a circumcision in children with urologic um, abnormalities to try to prevent your UTI from setting in. Um, and some of those have shown no benefit at all, that it didn't decrease. And these are little boys who are prone to UTIs because of other anatomic problems. Um, and it didn't work, didn't decrease the risk at all. So the, the scientific evidence suggests that it might reduce the risk. The evidence is rather weak it definitely does not prevent UTIs. Any person can get a urinary tract infection regardless of their genital anatomy.
0: Okay. Um, And in terms of penile cancer, I also found the American Cancer Society um, made a statement saying that circumcision has nothing to do with penile cancer. So why is the AAP saying that it can help with that or prevent penile cancer?
1: So I think that... Circumcision does decrease the chance of penile cancer simply because removing any body part eliminates the risk of that body part being affected with a disease. So it's you know you could amputate your ear and then not have any skin cancer develop on your ear also. So in that way it's true, but I think that what the American Cancer Society has wisely gone beyond this to say is having the foreskin is not the risk factor. And that's that's where non-therapeutic circumcision is a problem. The risk is not having a foreskin. The risk is HPV infection, which is transmitted sexually, and so the prevention of that is you know, safe sexual practices. Um, cigarette smoking is a risk factor for it. And diseased foreskin, pathologic phimosis is a risk factor. So those are the, the actual issues that we need to be looking at and modifying, not just indiscriminately removing all foreskins.
0: Right, so it's not having a foreskin is how you you know clean or take care or of just like of that foreskin along with the rest of your body and what practices you do that can right. have. Right, an and effect. it's
1: not correct, and it's not impossible to get penile cancer in a circumcised penis either. That that does happen as well, but most penile cancer does start in the foreskin, and so it's less likely to to develop penile cancer if you have had a circumcision.
0: Right, like your ear analogy. Right. Um, so do you have, like, in terms of the benefits that are talked about, is there anything I just went through the ones that they, um, stated in their policy statement, Mm -hmm. do you have, are there any other claims that are made with circumcision that you'd like to address?
1: Well, a common, common, uh, misconceptions that I see, there are two of them. One is that it's, that it's cleaner to not have a foreskin. And the other one is that it's, um, that taking care of a foreskin is difficult. Um, and those, unfortunately, are myths that are perpetuated by a lot in the medical profession. There's some misknowledge that's that's taught in medical schools that the foreskin should be retractable by age four. Um, and that is based on some, some um, evidence in the scientific literature, but that evidence is very old and has since been completely overwhelmed by evidence to the contrary that shows that the normal age of um, normal retraction of the prep use or resolution of physiologic phimosis, which is what m- the vast majority of baby boys are born with, um, which is where the head of the penis is covered by the foreskin and the foreskin cannot be retracted. And that's protective. That actually we know protects the glands. It keeps it sensitive and moist. Um, and it probably has some benefits with in terms of the probiotic flora that are normally located inside the foreskin, just like women have probiotic flora in their va- in their vagina. Um But so, so there, and then, so a lot of parents are told that they need to retract the foreskin and clean under, it and then that ends up leading to problems for which they end up having circumcision. Um, And so, you know, this gets passed on in families. I didn't have him circumcised as an infant, so I had to have him circumcised as a, you know, as a, as a boy, and it was horrible. And so then someone else say, well, my cousin had to be circumcised when he was 10, so I'm going to circumcise my baby now, so we don't have to deal with that. Um, and that's really one of the most common misconceptions. It's actually very easy to to take care of that body part, just like it is all the other body parts that we have.
0: So let's jump right into that. Like, how do you take care of an intact penis?
1: Um, so this is what I wrote the Good Mommy's Guide to a Little Boy's Penis about, really. Um, and it's it's not even that complicated. It doesn't necessarily need a pamphlet, but in the pam- most of the time in the pamphlet, I spend talking about the actual myths and kind of dispelling those. Um, really, you just wash just like you wash the rest of your body. You don't use soap on the inside of the foreskin, just like you don't put soap inside your vagina or inside your eyelids. That's mucosal tissue lining the inner foreskin, and mucosa is very sensitive to soap and to drying out. Um, and that predisposes to infections. You don't need to retract it any further than it naturally can go. Now, if there's extra um, folds of tissue, you can manipulate it a little bit to get inside those folds. But that's not the same thing as pulling it back and just dis- disrupting those natural attachments that are present between the prepuce and the head of the penis. Um, another thing I read about in my book is about the importance, I believe, of allowing some diaper-free time and allowing children to to touch themselves. Um, and once they get it to an appropriate age, you can teach them to do that in a socially acceptable manner. Um, but that, that's actually been shown in the medical literature that self manipulation of the foreskin helps to naturally separate it. So baby, you know, not baby boys, but children, boys are capable of doing this themselves. If they're just allowed, if they're not taught that that's an off limits area, if they're not kept in diapers all the time and that the way that they manipulate their, um, penile skin just naturally, not even as part of masturbation, just in general, helps separate that tissue.
0: Which is just like, you know, being aware of a, a part of their body and just being familiar with it, just like they would their toes or
1: their, you know, fingers or whatever else. Exactly, exactly. It's the same same type of touch that I'm talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I read your book, I, I went through it, um, and it was I had read a lot about circumcision, but I it was the first time I came into um across the idea that that area that the the foreskin protects needs to be sort of moist and and kind of more like the you you mentioned that that it was akin to the inside of your um cheek
1: so- right. And- There's actually a really great photo demonstration of that on uh, the website circumcisionharms.org. Um, and that's a, a survey that was conducted by a man who um, is very active in the community of men, who, of adult men who regret their circumcisions. And he posted an online survey to find out the particular features of the regret that they, um, that the problems they had, both physical and sexual and emotional. Um, And he has some images on there of normal penises and shows how the foreskin is actually meant to function biomechanically. And he has a side-by-side comparison of the head of the penis of a man who was circumcised at birth and a man who has a foreskin. Um, And the difference is dramatic.
0: Hmm. I will link that to the in the show notes. I will look for that and link to it. Um, But considering that and and that, you know, because we always here well it's just from foreskins there's no there's no purpose to it there's no you know what's the point it's just this little flap cut it off no problem this makes (laughs) shines Mm -hmm. the light on it and says no well there's actually a function to it what other functions are there to to the foreskin why is it there
1: yeah, there, there are several known functions, um, and it sort of reminds me of the appendix, how we were always taught that the appendix didn't matter. It was just a remnant organ from the evolutionary process, um, and yet, when I was in medical school, surgeons had mostly stopped doing removing appendixes when they were operating for another reason. It used to be sort of routine, like, well, I'm in the belly anyways, I'll remove the appendix, and they'd stopped doing that because they'd realized that the complications were outweighing, you know, the there's no... You know, theoretically, there's a benefit preventing preventing appendicitis, but that's only a theoretical benefit. It's not an actual treatment in any way, and many people would never have got appendicitis anyway. So you're not actually helping them. Um, and now we're realizing that the appendix is probably um, a very important source of healthy bacteria for a normal colon function. Um, and it's sort of the same thing has happened with the foreskin. I mean, we know that the foreskin is full of nerve endings, and that's that's just pathology. You've put it under a slide and there's tons of specialized nerve endings there, way more than any other part of the penis. It's very much similar to the clitoris in a woman. Um, It's undoubtedly based on the pathologic evidence and what intact men say, the most sensitive part of the penis. Um, When the foreskin is, when the penis is erect and the foreskin is retracted, it forms a ridged band that's important in sexual stimulation. Um, And it also, the the way that the foreskin rolls back on the penis is actually really important for the biomechanics of sex because when the man is penetrating his partner that that um tissue there moves and glides and it helps prevent friction which uh, you know friction and dryness are actually very common issues for a lot of adults and those are probably mostly related to circumcision status
0: hmm the, you know that's all. It's all so fascinating that we've like taken away all of these facts um, and just disregarded it. Right. But when you look at where this all started in terms of health, it makes sense. Could we talk a little a little bit about Doctor Kellogg's? Sure. <laughs> and um, so, would you explain why this practice of circumcision caught on? Um, during Dr. Kellogg's time?
1: Yes, so what I've read about that um, in the the few historic sources I've seen on this are that it was actually popularized as a way to prevent masturbation. Um, and at the same time, similar surgeries were conducted on girls and women. Um, they actually, I remember seeing a journal article from JAMA that was in the 40s or 50s showing a technique for female circumcision for this sort of purpose. Um, so it happened to both men and women. And um, for some reason in this country, it's stuck with men, although no one claims that it's for the purpose of preventing masturbation or sexual pleasure anymore. Um, they, you know, there are other benefits claimed other than that, theory, <laughs> that, what was considered to be a benefit, apparently, at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and just so that everybody's clear, the Dr. Kellogg's we're talking about is the same one that invented the cereal.
1: Right. Yes.
0: <laughs> Which is it's it just flabbergasting to me and um I I did come across the the information um that it, they wanted to do circumcision or, or um general mutilation on girls too and that mm-hmm. involved using acid on the
1: clitoris. Um, um yeah, that's one method that was used. Yeah.
0: Right. So um, it's then it comes to that double standard bias when we think about that we cringe.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: of how anybody would even consider pouring pouring acid on, you know, such sensitive parts. But we don't think (laughs) there's not that same cringing of thinking, take the foreskin away.
1: Right. And I think that there's two main reasons for that. One is that men, most men can still have orgasms without a foreskin, and they can certainly still conceive Without that, it doesn't affect their ability to, you know, impregnate a woman. Whereas female circumcision, we know that it, in certain cases, in the more extreme cases, it can affect women's childbearing ability and lead to to death during childbirth. And so, so, for men, they don't have this issue of looking at it affecting their ability to to um, conceive. Um, and the other factor is that we, you know, these days we live in a society where. We keep our clothes on all the time. And so we don't see what other people look like. A lot of men get into adulthood and have no idea that they have penile abnormalities from their circumcision because they just don't see other penises that often. Um, and, he, you know, in the days of the locker room when everyone was naked, most of the boys there were circumcised. And so it seemed normal. I've actually read um, medical literature from other countries. And in one Italian article and one Japanese article, both of them mentioned that not having a foreskin would be considered a very abnormal appearance, because in their culture, you only see the head of the penis when there's an erection.
0: Mm. Right. And it brings me back to uh, statistics right now, because that's one of the, that's sort of one of the reasons people cite for, um, for considering circumcision is that I don't want my child to have, to feel shamed in the locker room or feel, you know, but isn't it true that right now, in the u.s it's about half and half 50 percent of the percentage Mm -hmm. of of boys who are circumcised and those who are not
1: i believe it's a little bit closer to 60 percent who are not um although that's nationwide and in individual countries it varies so in california the majority are intact and in um some other states it's a, a smaller percentage that's kept intact than is circumcised but so overall I think it's around 60%.
0: So that consideration of well I don't want you know locker room shame that's no longer an issue. If that was Well
1: correct it's no longer an issue and it only ever was an issue because it was a cultural norm. I mean it's not an issue in any other parts of the world where people aren't routinely circumcised.
0: Right. Right. Um it, the cultural norm here in the in the US Right. Yeah. Um, another reason I hear that goes around is, you know, dad's circumcised, so he may want his son to look like him. Um, and somebody had a good point there is like, how often have you actually seen your dad's penis? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right. That, that's very true. Um, I, I think it sort of goes deeper than that though for most for most men it's more than just a cosmetic thing, but they you know some of them genuinely feel that they weren't harmed by it and they feel like it's good and they've heard horror stories of having a foreskin and so they think that they're that they have been spared some disease and you know needing to have a circumcision later even though those two things really aren't very common um, and you know my hope is just that those that those men will be capable of seeing that this, this is a cultural norm and to step back and rethink it and learn more about the anatomy and the function of the foreskin. And actually, if they need to, watch a video of a circumcision being carried out and seeing what it actually is that their someone would be going through. Um, and I've, I've heard many stories of, of the, those facts being enough to, for men to be able to step back and realize that even if they're okay with their circumcision, it's not necessary and it can potentially be very harmful.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about what the experience of circumcision is like for a newborn, um, and what are the the risks of a circumcision?
1: Yeah, so you, you unfortunately, um, there are a lot of videos on YouTube and on the internet of circumcision. So I would definitely encourage anyone who's even considering it to watch one of those first, so that they truly understand what they're getting into. Um, But the basic procedure involves forcibly separating the the foreskin from the head of the penis where it's naturally attached. It's it's very similar to the way fingernails are attached to the nail bed. Um, So a a metal instrument is used to to separate that. This is after the child is strapped down on the circumstraint board that holds them flat. Um, And sometimes they are anesthetized first with local anesthesia, which... I think that these days that's used the majority of the time. Um, In the past it wasn't, and there was a lot of people saying, there was a lot of discussion that babies didn't feel pain, you know, I'm making air quotes here, Uh, (laughs) or that they, you know, that they didn't remember it, so it didn't really matter. But there was a a really strong study done that showed that their stress levels were dramatically increased um, after circumcision, and that was lowered with the use of anesthetic, not eliminated, but lowered. Um, so the anesthetic, I don't know if you've ever had anesthetic injected, but I have, and it's pretty painful when it happens. Um, it's the same thing that you get at the dentist or if you have to have sutures or anything. So, so, you know, they have that injected around their penis, um, and the foreskin is forcibly separated. And then some form of cutting device is used either a clamp or they put on the plastibell and then tie a string around. There's a little groove in the plastibell; They tie a string and then cut off some of the tissue that's on the, Um, end of the string but they leave a little bit because they're actually not cutting off all this tissue what they're doing is um, strangulating it and so over time that tissue that's on the outside of the string will will die necrose and then the bell will fall off
0: and it's interesting like as you were saying this right now about the pain The American Academy of Pediatrics recently, as recently as last week, so January 25th, came out with a a new policy saying that newborns, especially preemies, experience too much pain during routine procedures Mm. and that um, routine medical procedures and that we should try to do all we can to minimize that pain because it can, that repeated exposure to pain can change uh, brain development and the body's stress response systems. Um, yeah,
1: that's, I'm glad that I'm glad that it's being noticed more. I mean, the, the lack of empathy to another person's pain, you know, especially an infant because they can't communicate it. It was a really disturbing part of, you know, the history of medicine. And I'm glad to hear that they're uh, recognizing that more now.
0: Yes, and I'm curious to see how in the future this, these two things will come together um, right. for them in terms of you're recommended not to have preemies have routine procedures that they, where they experience too much pain, um, and yet we know that circumcision can be extremely pay, uh, painful um, even using anesthesia,
1: right? Right, right. Yeah, definitely. And the, I mean, the anesthesia wears off and you still have this open wound and you have the head of the penis that's raw tissue that wasn't really meant to be exposed yet in a diaper. And it, it's got to be extremely uncomfortable. There's no way that it it just doesn't make sense that it wouldn't be.
0: And I think, uh, you know, I hadn't considered that the attachment between the foreskin and the glands was as strong as your nail to your finger. Right. That's not just, you know, wipe it back and and be done. Like that's,
1: that requires some force. Right. I mean, most of the cases I've heard about where, where a boy was taken in for a well child check and for some reason that office thinks that they need to be forcibly retracted and they, you know, just pull the foreskin back and just tear those attachments. They bleed afterwards. They have swelling afterwards. It's, it's not a benign procedure. It's meant to be gently separated over years.
0: So even past four years, you were saying?
1: Yes. Yeah. Lots of studies have shown that in, even up to age 18, it's it's very, you know, it tapers off to a very small number by then. Um, but it's quite common to still have physiologic phimosis well, well before the teen years.
0: What could you speak to the um, th- the thoughts that um, the child? If uh, having a circumcision then becomes completely quiet could be withdrawing into a state of of shock due to the pain. Um, what have you found about this?
1: Um, I think that's very plausible. It you know it's it very much makes sense because infants do have a very limited ability to communicate. I mean they they have crying, but. I mean, how long can they cry before they get worn out? They're, you know, they're so tiny. And I think most of us don't don't really push our infants to that limit. And so we don't, you know, once they start crying, we go to them and help them stop. But You can imagine how quickly that would um, use up what little resources they have for communicating. I have not... Um, specifically looked into the medical literature for anything on that uh, except for the article I mentioned where they did find elevated cortisol levels in infants undergoing circumcision and it was a lot worse if they didn't get anesthesia um, and cortisol of course is a stress hormone so that that's the one physiologic indicator of this severe stress that I know of but you know intuitively as a mother it makes sense that they you know would cry and protest and if their cries were heard their little bodies would you know not be able to keep communicating that throughout the length of the circumcision procedure.
0: Well, and what I find hard is that usually, you know, they kind of, not hard, but that makes me think really what is the baby experiencing is the fact that most parents are not allowed to go in with their child for the procedure. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't want to be separated from my child at any point. Um, right, much less like she goes to the dentist, and I'm there. She go, you know, forever, mm-hmm. anything. Thinking, I have a hard time figuring why um, that the separation is required.
1: Right, and I, you know, I actually heard. Um, well, you you listened to um, the same interview that I did, where um, Brother K discussed the difference between a medical. A non-therapeutic circumcision in a medical setting versus a ritual circumcision, where the whole family is around and everyone sees it and everyone knows what's going to happen. Um, you know, in that setting, like like a bris. You know, in that setting, everyone knows what's going to happen. They they've seen them before, so it's unlikely to be this shocking, shocking event. Whereas in the medical setting, you know, most of the people who are choosing to have their child circumcised in a medical setting. Aren't doing it for cultural reasons, and they they don't really know what a circumcision is. And I suspect that if um, most parents who witnessed it would be would have a very hard time staying there and watching that sort of a procedure.
0: And I, and in that same during that same uh, webinar that we attended, what was interesting to me in that same point was his comment about the ones that are done ritualistically. The community is there; everybody's watching and supporting. Because it has that layer, you feel that there's a community bond, a cultural bond, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to having it been be done, sort of quietly behind closed doors, you know, taken away and and set aside and done and brought back. Um,
1: right, and, and that distinction is not to say that that it's the children who are circumcised is part of a ritual might not also have complications from it. Um, so I still think in those settings it would be wise for parents to really look at the potential medical issues that could arise and to, you know, consider how that fits in with their religious beliefs. Um, but it is, there is still some connection over it and some closeness, and so it definitely feels different than than the um, non-therapeutic hospital, you know, behind closed-door circumcision.
0: Right, um, and it's it's to weigh all, you know, give that information so they can weigh all their uh, decisions Way. with with the proper information. Um, and I know, and I, right now I can't remember what it's called, and I didn't write it down, but I know that within the Jewish community, there is a um a different, an altered, modified ceremony instead of a brisk um. That actually it's to take place of that and sort of celebrate the same rite of passage, but without actually doing the circumcision.
1: Right. And I could be wrong, but I think that's called a Brit Malah or I I believe that's what it's called. Um, But yeah, I mean, there are are certainly a lot of Jewish people who have chosen not to um, circumcise their children and, and they still want to honor their religion and traditions in other ways. And so they still have the ceremony at the eighth day of life, the naming ceremony. Um, with other acts to, to celebrate their heritage.
0: Mm-hmm. And for all our Jewish listeners out there, forgive us to non-Jewish people um, trying to figure out how to best talk about this. <laughs> um, so we were talking about also the risks of circumcision in terms of the, so what the experience is like for the newborn at that time. What other risks of circumcision past the actual procedure, Mm -hmm. um, can they, can be encountered?
1: So the immediate risks um, are the same as they are for any, any major medical procedure or, or surgery minor or not, which would include bleeding and infection um, as well as death. Death is not common, but it is reported from time to time. Um, And it's because I think most of the time from blood loss, the, the, the cut tissue can certainly bleed quite a bit, and it's a very common cause of return visits to the ER, to the office after circumcision. Most of the time it's managed by just using, by cauterizing it in the office or using silver nitrate sticks, but sometimes it's more severe, and they do have to be brought back to the operating room. Um, Well, not brought back to the operating room, but brought, because the original procedure is not done in the operating room, but um, they do have to go to surgery to have the bleeding stopped on occasion. Um, And there are a a few stories of, little boys who didn't make it that far and who bled to death from it. Um, Infection is a problem. It's certainly way more common in like ritual bush circumcisions that happen in Africa. You can find a lot of articles on that there where it's just done um, in a non-sterile environment. Um, And a lot of those boys develop penile gangrene. So that's a lot less likely to happen in the sterile hospital environment here, but it's not impossible. I mean, we, we do keep infection rates down with the techniques we have, but we don't get them to zero. Um, in the, you know, And then, of course, there's whatever pain the child experiences as they go through diaper changes and urinate, and that skin is exposed. Um, one of the mo- most frequent complications, physical complications, is meatal stenosis. Um, and the meatus is the opening at the tip of the penis through which the urine comes out. And stenosis means that it narrows. Um, and that's, there are a couple of theories about that, whether it's from cutting the blood vessels that supply that tissue versus exposure of that tissue to the urine, because normally it would be covered by the foreskin completely in the young age. Um, and uh, regardless, though, it is widely recognized as being almost exclusively a disease of circumcision, that caused by circumcision, that it's extremely rare for it to happen to someone who's not circumcised. Um, and the estimates on that vary from from the single digits to about fifteen percent. Um, it's certainly common enough that most urologists see it in their office at least every month. Um, and it most commonly shows up when the child's going through potty training, or you know, usually around age four, three or four. Um, and they'll have symptoms, urinary symptoms, of burning when they burning when they pee, having a pee frequently, you know, having their bladders just angry because it's been having to squeeze so hard to get the urine out through this tiny little hole. They have, you know, their stream isn't good. It's very narrow and sprays. Um, And most of the time that's treated as an office procedure where anesthetic is applied to the head of the penis. And then that opening is cut open in order to relieve that scar tissue there. Um, It's, you know, relatively speaking, a minor procedure, but it's still rather unpleasant for a young boy to have to go through that. Um, And certainly, uses up a lot of resources. And then, you know, it usually takes a few weeks after the procedure is done for the bladder to kind of stabilize and get back to normal. So there's a lot of suffering involved with that leading up to the, not just from the procedure itself, but leading up to it and then in the recovery period as well. Um, There's longer term, the complications. There are several healing complications that we see. We see skin bridges quite often, which is where the tissue from the shaft, the shaft skin of the penis attaches to the head of the penis. And so there's like this bridge of tissue that goes from the shaft skin up to the head of the penis. And those are extremely common. Um, Some men aren't bothered by them. Sometimes they cause pain with erections because it keeps the penis from straightening out completely on that side. Sometimes they're the way that they're configured, they trap debris underneath them. And so it causes irritation from, you know, it's difficult to clean under there. Um, and then there's a lot of cosmetic complications. That's when it's a very common cause for visits to the pediatric urologist are parents being unsatisfied with the cosmetic appearance after the circumcision where the skin isn't evenly removed or too much skin is removed and it causes the penis to be um, pulled back so it doesn't stick out anymore like it did before. Um, a whole variety of things. And sometimes those are just observed until puberty. Sometimes they're operated on, you know, in the boy when when he presents to the office. Um long term, you know, in adult men, I mentioned the circumcisionharm.org survey, and that's and, you know, this is a survey of men who are not happy that they were circumcised, and they describe a variety of physical effects. A lot of men will have um sensation changes. So around the circumcision scar, it'll either be hypersensitive or sort of numb. Um, and in some men this changes after they orgasm and it becomes an unpleasant sensation afterwards. You know, men complain. Some men complain of hair being pulled up onto the shaft of the penis more so than than it would be in a man who, more so than the hair would go up on a man who still had his foreskin, and that's just from from skin being removed and the skin being pulled up taut. A lot of men complain of tightness with erections, discomfort with erections. Um, Some men feel that they have sexual dysfunction issues that arise from it, um, like erectile dysfunction. I don't know of any strong studies showing that in either way, to my knowledge it hasn't really been looked at closely um, and a lot of men, adult men who are not happy about it have a lot of um, emotional um, distress about it because they, when they really think about what it was it just doesn't make sense to them, they, you know, they feel violated they feel like they've lost their parents trust, um, some men don't feel that way some men feel like their parents did the best they could with what they knew and even though they aren't happy that it was done. they forgive their parents and other men have a hard time with that. A lot of men hold a lot of resentment towards their physicians as well um there's there's a lot a lot that we don't talk about often that's that goes on with this
0: yeah and and that's that we talk about a lot of the health issues, maybe religious issues, but we don't consider the psychological effects of of right. having it and that kind of brings us back also also to the ethics of you know, and you as a doctor pointed out in your book of the first do no harm. Right. Um And then also the, that right of body integrity that we have.
1: Right. Yeah, I'd say there's three main ethical principles that apply to this. The first one is the do no harm, which is non-maleficence. Um, and the second one is to do good, which is beneficence. And, you know, th- there's it. There's a, it gets murky when you start to claim that a theoretical benefit, like preventing theoretical penile cancer down the road, is the same as a true benefit, and allowing that to weigh in to the decision. I mean, a true benefit is you're suffering right now from this disease, and this treatment's going to relieve it. That that's a benefit. The other things are theoretical, and so you're putting someone at risk for something that very likely may never be an issue in their lives. Um, and then, of course, autonomy. Um, I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics Ethics policy describes the types of decision-making that are appropriate for parents to make for their children. Um, and it, circumcision really doesn't meet their criteria um, that they describe in their paper. I mean, it, it's you know we do need to make decisions for our children in the moment when, when it's something that's likely to, to impact them negatively if something's not done now. But when it's something that's theoretical and that's debatable you know, we're making an irreversible decision for our child. And that, that leads to a lot of regret. Um, in men as adults,
0: absolutely. Um, and, and again, we've, you know, as we've talked, there's so many layers and so many things that uh, compound to this around this procedure. Um, We haven't even talked about financials. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. something you feel comfortable talking about or in terms of not having the knowledge for it. I know I don't have any knowledge.
1: (laughs) Well, I have some general knowledge of it because, you know, financially it's obviously far more expensive to perform a circumcision and then, you know, take back 10% of those children for for them, you know, to treat the meatal stenosis later. And I mean – although if if we look at the actual numbers from the medical community there's probably a significant amount of money that's being spent on foreskin disease, but a lot of that is caused by poor advice on cleansing um, so in order we'd have to you know also correct that and in, in order to get a true balance but if if the, you know in I believe it's in Finland they have data on this that the need for circumcision as an adult is one in sixteen thousand six hundred sixty seven or something like that um, so it's not it, it's not common that someone's going to need a circumcision. It's not any more common than... I mean, it's way less common than someone needing to have their appendix removed.
0: Right. And in Finland, they are all intact, correct? Correct. So one in 16,000? Right. That's a very small number. Right. Of actually needing a procedure when you have a country who culturally knows how to properly take care of the intact penis so you don't see you know I'm assuming you don't see those problems come up um, of of early retraction and creating problems that way. Um, yeah, that's a very small number
1: right yeah, it really is it's it's just another you know it's a normal body part and it's it's not. It's not this, you know, demonized thing that it's been made out to be.
0: Right, right. Well, you know, you had a uh, another, I, lo- I loved all your analogies, the one about the eyeball, the one about <laughs> the, the, um, the nail, the fingernail, uh, the appendix, and also the thought of you wouldn't cut your arm off just to avoid breaking it. Right, right. So where do you see the fu- the future of circumcision going? Have you been seeing changes in the years that you've been practicing?
1: Um, I definitely think that I am seeing more um, parents who are choosing to keep their children intact. Um, and overall, just in, in general, with the medicine, seeing a more... Um, proactive, self-informing approach amongst people where it's not so much this authoritarian model anymore where, you know, you'd go see the doctor, he'd tell you what to do. But now people want to know, you know, what they can do on their own and how they can prevent diseases with diet and supplements and they're just overall more knowledgeable than in the past. Um, I, you know, just looking at the global situations, there are some countries that have already um, even considered making male circumcision illegal. Several countries have made female circumcision illegal, of course, um, including the United States. And I, I think that when we all come together as a people and hear enough shared stories, and as we all have enough empathy to relate to people that are in different places, we'll be able to step back and really see this um, as the cultural practice that it is. And realize that it's not in our children's best interest just like we've done with female circumcision and you know a lot of people are trying to re-educate the cultures where that's performed and try to help break that cycle there and i think the same thing is going to happen here and throughout the rest of the world um for, for the religious circumcisions that is a bulk of circumcisions going on also um but that's actually one of the one of the books that i read that helped helped me see it more clearly was a book by a jewish author um Ronald Goldman. He's written a couple of books about circumcision um, that are really great, and he's it's, one's called "Questioning Circumcision: A Jewish Perspective." Um, and so, you know, I'm not I'm not an expert in in the Jewish or Muslim religions, but I think that there is space also for people within their religion to reconsider these rituals and choose other ways to to practice um, from here on out. So I, I think there's great hope that it's going to be that we're all going to sort of wake up with this collective awareness. You know of of how this impacts people, just like we've done here for female genital mutilation.
0: Mm-hmm. And I find, in most cases, I mean the um, having the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation for sort of it, in, in a not very strong way, say hmm, you should probably do circumcisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, I'm hoping that, especially with this now um, statement on pain, on newborn pain, that they might look at the literature again and be a little bit more stronger in their stance um, just as because things don't add up, that's kind right. of what's going on. Um, and I find having a statement like that can be very harmful because we do place um, th- th- belief in authority.
1: Right. We do. And we want to be able to, because we can't all do all of this research on our own. And so we want to be able to trust those whose career it is to do this research for us and to communicate to us well. Um, And so I, I do hope it catches up, too. I mean, the Canadian Pediatric Society doesn't make that recommendation. The National Health Services in England does not make that recommendation. The Royal Dutch Medical Association specifically states that it's a harmful procedure and that it's the physician's duty to to um, inform parents of this and to keep them from circumcising their children. Um, so, so really, it, it is very odd. And, you know, their guidelines have changed quite a bit over the years. They kind of go back and forth on this topic. Um, but, yeah, I, I am really glad to hear the neonate and the pain um, article that you mentioned, and hopefully that will be applied to this topic.
0: Yeah, and I will link to all this on the um, show notes, and I will also link to, I'll find Ronald Goldman's books and and, and link Great. to that as well. If listeners want to follow what you're doing, read your your book, um, find out where to find it, how can they contact you?
1: Um, yeah, I have a website. It's com. A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, C-A-R-M-A-C-K. Um, my books are also both on Amazon and um, my Uh, reclaiming my birthrights is on most book vendors including iTunes Um, The Good Mommy's Guide is just on Amazon Um, and on my website I do have a free PDF download about the myths and facts around circumcision which includes most of the things we talked about today and it has um, embedded links to the further um, the sources for the information like for example the American Cancer Society statement for penile cancer is linked to there and other, other good resources so um, and I hope that that can be used to. I'd love to see doulas and midwives keep copies of that in their office, put them in their you know birth kits, and share that information with other parents.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I'm glad you shared that because um, I had not looked at that <laughs> that one I hadn't run across. So sure. I will definitely um, look at it and download it. Was there any myth that we left out today?
1: Um, let me think. <laughs> I don't think so. Actually, I think that I think that we covered. Covered them all pretty well, and I guess the, the parting
0: words that you would have of, of I mean, I know that one of the most important takeaways for me is the whole thing that cleaning an intact penis is not a big deal,
1: right, not at all. I mean I have a son myself and who of course is intact, and it's been nothing it's it's not been an issue in the slightest, and he's five years old now and you know, I don't, I don't, don't see any cause for concern at all.
0: Oh, should so? What conversations should listener have with their pediatrician regarding their
1: son's penises? So I, you know, I think it would be helpful to ask your pediatrician how they feel about circumcision and and find out. Um, and if they're not. Educated about it, it would be very good to present them with some information. Um, You know, my my booklet talks about normal foreskin care, but there's also a good um, little downloadable PDF from um, the group No Circ called "How to Care for Your Intact Son's Penis." It's N O C I R C, Um, and I've actually used that in my office a lot to give to parents. And often the parents were referred to me by their pediatrician because they still had physiologic phimosis, so the you know, the force was still covering the head of the penis and wasn't retractable yet, um, and it was normal. And so I, I've used that handout quite a bit to help people um, and also made sure to send that information back to the referring pediatrician in my notes that they, you know, some some education on, you know, even though the studies initially showed age four, you know, we've learned since then that that's not the case and um, that soap can actually be very damaging, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, you definitely don't want your pediatrician You don't want a pediatrician pushing circumcision on you, but you also don't want them pushing premature retraction of the foreskin or encouraging you to care for it improperly. So, so you really do need to take responsibility for that yourself. Um, And if you feel comfortable communicating that to your pediatrician, it'll help them. Um, It'll help them because they'll even if they don't hear it when you say it, they'll they'll hear it and it'll sink in, and and they'll be able to help more parents that way.
0: Because you know, it's not like they have bad intentions it's just they when they were taught that's what would the cost that was the custom to do retraction
1: right i i believe that that's true for for the majority of people i think that most of them have have good intentions um and if that's true then all we need is education and that'll help redirect those intentions into practices that are actually um not going to cause harm.
0: fantastic Adrian, thank you so so much for being yeah. on the show today and sharing your knowledge and and getting this information out. I truly appreciate it.
1: Yes, thank you, Adriana.
0: Mamas, I love to hear from you, so share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Stay in touch by following Birthful on Facebook or Twitter, and even better, become a part of the Birthful community by subscribing at birthful.com. You'll get access to exclusive goodies like the Birthful Mamas private group. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.